Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello there, Steve. Our guest for episode 13 is Susie Gage. Susie is the host of the excellent Say Why to Drugs podcast, author of a book linked to the podcast and professor of psychology and epidemiology at Liverpool University. And... As you'll hear in this interview, Susie is a very experienced and talented musician. Listening back to this episode, Ben, I'd say you'd be hard pressed to find a better advocate for picking up an instrument and playing music with your mates. I think exactly, mate. I mean, I think the two things that I've written here in front of me thinking about um, the prep for tonight was just uh, she will never stop being a musician and uh, and what a brilliant now a narrator with wit and passion and a fierce intelligence eh? yeah i and yes absolutely and i think i think this might be the most we've laughed during a recording as well i haven't gone through and counted the number of times that we're all laughing but it does kind of feel like it's pretty regularly throughout the more than more than many of the other ones we've done so far yeah absolutely there were a couple of points where i, I was trying to tell myself to stop laughing please <laughs> but it just it just wasn't possible was it because there was there were so many um brilliant stories that she had to reveal um and they just kept coming and uh, and you know such fluency um to to the way she talked about everything yeah and amongst the enjoyment that Susie expresses when she's recounting those musical experiences so within her recollections are some lovely descriptions of the joy of the creative process and um, and sort of evidencing why it can be so affecting absolutely mate I mean I think um, again one of the things that, that came out of the episode for me listening back to it was you know something we referred to before which is this kind of the question of how people um, how people measure their success um, and on what basis people do decide to kind of pursue craft um, of making music or of whatever kind of creative venture it is. And, uh, you know, about about not becoming kind of enslaved to the notion that success is based on on a record deal or a number of units sold. And, you know, it's clear from the conversation with Susie that she she measured it out in an entirely different way, didn't she? It was in mm. friendships made, collaborations formed, practicing and becoming you know excelling as a musician and mm. kind of living uh living for the experience in the moment i thought absolutely yeah that really encapsulates the spirit of this this conversation and i came away from it really hoping or looking forward to hearing what music susie makes next because as you said there's there's little doubt you can you can have little doubt when you hear her speak that there's more to come you know, despite the successes of her her podcast and her academic career, um, it's just a matter of time before there's there's more music uh, from Susie Gage. Absolutely, I mean, her you know the vibe that she that she sent over that we refer to in the conversation was was breathtaking and inspiring, wasn't it? It kind of instantly I started thinking, God, I really need to get up and do more, make more music on the basis. <laughs> on the basis, look at what this individual has done. You know, it was yeah. it was endless, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some brilliant, some brilliant um, projects that she's been involved with, which we won't trail here because it's worth sitting with the interview and 
having those revealed because some of them you won't see coming. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll be completely, <laughs> completely blindsided by it. You know, I think, I think one of the other things was kind of um, struck me that there was some, some brilliant stuff around the kind of the impact that um, the impact of the environment and that how that affects musicians or how it affects creativity, whether that's, you know, the, the notion of growing up in a household with music around you and how, how important that can be as a kind of formative experience or whether it's kind of cities, places where you find yourself with like-minded people with support and collaboration. And that really kind of hit home through the, through some of the conversation with Susie, didn't it? It did. Yeah. 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 It paints a really, uh, a really strong picture of um, communities of creative people encouraging each other to be, uh, to be making things and to be putting them putting their work out there and uh, it's a really it's a really great description of how important those sorts of creative communities are and if you think back to the episode with uh, with Dempsey you know it's it, it absolutely life-savingly vital <laughs> to find even just a pocket of people that you can uh, uh, that who will support your creative ideas yeah and they and they can see you they can see you and sustain you through through a lifetime of making music some of those some of those relationships can't they yeah absolutely well our thanks to susie for coming on the podcast and we highly recommend her show say why to drugs uh, and there's links to that at the uh, uh, in the show notes of this episode and we're recording this episode just after the august bank holiday weekend which is uh, traditionally when the reading festival uh, takes place. So it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't mention the four-part documentary series Ben, myself and Nana Shah made a few years ago, Main Stage. Um, Main Stage looks back at the 1989 Reading Festival through interviews with the acts that played there that year. It's all up on YouTube for free and there's links in the show notes. There's some really great interviews on there with Peter Hook and Spider Stacy and Rice Kagona from the Bundy Boys, Miles Hunt from Wonder Stuff, Mary Coughlin, Jarbo, uh, and folks from pretty much all the bands that played on the main stage in 1989. Um, do you have any particular standout memories from making main stage, Ben? I've got too many to share, really. But <laughs> I suppose the first, you know, as you were kind of listing the people that we... Um, that we had a chance to interview and some of those were, were fantastic opportunities and and the whole thing was a huge learning experience for us wasn't mm. it from from that very first interview with with david gedge where we were kind of working on our working off our nerves really um i think um i think as a, as a whole experience um going and uh, going over to paris and meeting with steph and isa um you know from les negres fair it was that in itself kind of, and the formation of that, um, the friendship with those two people and the way that they welcomed us into their, into their house and into their lives and shared their stories. I think mm. that was probably one of the highlights that I look back, um, you know, as, uh, as the overall success of that project, I think. What about for you? Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. There are, there are too many too many but i think um the the one that sort of springs to mind when i when i think about main stage I, I i share that one about going going over to paris um but sitting down with uh jarbo in birmingham after she'd played a show in her hotel and 
having this yeah somebody whose music I didn't really know that much about and hearing her just open up and share her story based on the sort of uh, passion and and bravery um that you'd sort of want for yourself if you were you know if you were being honest <laughs> so I wish I could be that brave about my um creative you know journey and and it was a remarkable remarkably honest and uh, affecting in, interview it was it was so it was so much and, I, and you know we've you and i've talked about some of the some of the discussions within that and if we think we even referenced it in one of the earlier episodes but um there's a particular part of that conversation around her her journey a decision to to become to to give over her life to being a musician that mm. is so inspiring you know I, if i find myself with a you know a moment of downness or trying to trying to figure out what i need to do i sometimes return to that and listen and you know watch that clip and then i kind of you know it's enough to kind of buoy you up and go okay that's what it's about you know mm. take take that leap of faith is what mm. she says isn't she or mm. not exactly but um you know it's it was as you said such an affecting conversation Absolutely. As is this conversation with Susie Gage, which we'll go over to now for episode 13 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Susie Gage. Um, I am a scientist and a musician and a writer and I make podcasts. Um, and the song at the end is a song by a band that I was in called, at the time they were called the Subterraneans. They later went on to be called You and the Atom Bomb. But the song that I've picked is called Carve a Smile. And it's one of the very first ones that we ever wrote and recorded. So, well, the biog that you sent across to us names 12 different bands that you've played in in the last <laughs> 20, 20 years or thereabouts. Uh, how nostalgic has it been preparing to do this interview? Oh God, it's been amazing. It's really fun. First of all, I couldn't find any of our old demos. So I've been sort of emailing my old bandmates who who now live all around the world and I hadn't spoken to them for quite a while. So it was really nice to, we had a really lovely reminisce over email um, over the last couple of weeks and found some old demos. And then by a weird coincidence, yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a message on Facebook going, I'm just moving house and I've just found these two Subterraneans demos. And it was two other ones that I don't even have copies of anymore. So he's burning those once he's moved and unpacked them again, because they've got hidden in boxes again. But once he's done that, then I'm going to have two more that we made back in, I think, 2003 that I haven't heard probably since not long after that. So so that was a weird coincidence to happen sort of yesterday while I was just thinking about recording this interview. We just had a similar thing, didn't we? We just had a similar experience with a, a band that Ben and I were in and a, and a song that we thought had been completely lost forever because no one had a copy of it. And the bass player moved house and sent me a a, a, a text message with a, with a, just a photograph of the sleeve saying, look what I've just found. And we'd only just been, Ben and I had only just been talking about, oh, that's lost forever, yeah, what a shame. And then totally given it, yeah. up on the idea that we'd ever hear that song again. It was only, I mean, you said you could still play it. But um, the memory, the memory of recording it, and especially because it was such a kind of heartfelt song for us, wasn't it? And um, yeah, 
uh, I, can't, I can't wait to hear it. I hope it, I hope it fulfills what the promise is in our minds. Yeah, you've got to hope the CD still plays as well and things like that. Yeah, well, it's on a it's a on a cassette because we're a little older. Oh, <laughs> it's literally a demo tape. Well, well, lots of ours were recorded onto cassettes. So the first few demos we did were all on a Tascam four track. You know where it's a you put a cassette in and it records two of the tracks on one side and two on the other. And yeah, so I do I do have a special place in my heart for cassettes. Yeah. That's a great thing. Uh, Susie, if you could take us back to your first experience of being in a band, was it something that you actively pursued from a from a young age? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember we used to, with f- friends of mine at secondary school, we used to all meet up at our houses and just sort of make music. I remember asking for a guitar for Christmas or, my, or birthday and I played the piano, but I really liked playing keyboards. So but I thought guitar was more more what you needed to be in a band. So I kind of tried to play guitar. I'm not, I'm not very good at the guitar and I never have been. But luckily, I eventually I realised that playing keyboards was actually fine. I didn't need to learn the guitar. But I, I knew I wanted, to, I wanted to make music and I wanted to make music with other people as well um, from a really young age. So where I think other people used to go around to each other's houses and like I don't know what gossip and stuff we used to write stupid songs and record them on a like my parents had on the um kitchen table just a little sort of radio tape recorder thing and what we used to do is just while we were having dinner we'd just set it recording and record ourselves talking and singing and messing around and then forget it was recording and suddenly remember and realize and rewind and listen to it and that kind of thing so that kind of documenting what we were doing is something that I've kind of always done, but it, it quite quickly turned into, well, let's write songs and record them and let's make music videos in the back garden and <laughs> press play on the keyboard demo and sing along to it and do dance routines and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's something that from quite an early age, I've definitely wanted to be making music. Were both your parents into music? Did you grow up with music on in the house in and around you? Yeah, um, not so much playing, but definitely there was always music on. And, and it's something that I really vividly remember is Sunday lunch was a time when we'd all sit down and have a roast dinner together. But it meant that my sister and I could pick one of the vinyl records to listen to while we were having dinner. And that so things like Jeff Wayne, Jeff Wayne, Jeff yeah, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. I was going to say Jeff Lynn. No, he's from ELO. That's someone else. Or ELO or the Beatles or, you know, um, they had a few, quite a big record collection of sort of that kind of era of stuff. So it would always be a sort of battle as to what we'd get to listen to while we were having our lunch. And then they would always have this radio station called Capital Gold on, which was like 60s and 70s music. So there are so many songs that I know all the words to, but I don't know who they're by because it's just sort of listening to them on the radio. They've kind of absorbed into my brain, but I missed that kind of where like further sort of wider cultural way they fitted all together. I just was like, well, I like that one. I mean, I've I've gone back and found out since it's things like Kites by Simon Dupree and the Big Sound and that kind of thing, but just really amazing songs that were just on the radio sort of around the house. So yeah, it was definitely music around all the time. And my parents really encouraged my sister and I to sort of learn musical instruments. So we both started learning the piano and then I learned the flute as well. And um, yeah, we were just sort of 
encouraged but not pushed I would say which is a good way to be and what are the first sort of the first sort of musical experiences that you're listening to the first bands that are inspiring you to definitely pursue that and make music oh gosh well I mean lots of the sort of the 60s bands were really inspiring but then the first music I felt like was mine um was probably Blur definitely early on I remember going on holiday to France and the there was a girl in the chalet next to us who had um a blur single i can't remember which one it was now but this was just it must have been around the time of um the great escape and oh which oasis album was it you know the big blur v oasis battle and she had this blur single and i had sort of seen i remember seeing blur on top of the pops and being really struck by some of the lyrics um and thinking, wow, this is this is something different and this is something that's mine. And that so then hanging out with her and listening to this blur um single over and over again, and I was like, okay, this is really good. And then a, a year or so later, um we went on holiday to America and we we flew with Virgin Atlantic, and it was the first time I'd flown on a plane that had individual TV screens. And there was a music channel, and on, on the channel they were just showing music videos, and it was sort of three three from each band in a row, and there were three Radiohead music videos on there, and it was like High and Dry, Fake Plastic Trees, and Just, I think. And that really, really was like, whoa, okay, who are these? Because this is amazing. And and I think so that inspiration of not only are they brilliant videos but incredible songs and then I think I immediately went out and bought the bends and was like okay sod blur this is incredible (laughs) um well I just had a question about um going back to playing in bands when you were at school and you mentioned um playing in a school talent show and the only gig that you did with pig pig bay is that right yep (laughs) in the school talent show so I, I I just wanted to ask if you did you win that talent show i don't i don't think so so it's a bit of a blur to me to be honest but the only thing i do remember is i was playing guitar in that band and i remember that the adrenaline was so much that we were playing and then when we got off stage i realized that my guitar was covered in blood and i'd like pulled a bit of my nail or something and bled all over my guitar and i hadn't noticed at all while we were actually playing but then when i came off i was like oh oh dear (laughs) So then I was like, performing is, yeah, serious adrenaline buzz that you don't even notice if you injure yourself. This is good. I need to do it more. Was that your first show? First gig you've done? Um, I think it was the first sort of evening in front of your peers kind of gig. I definitely played, we played in the school assembly. So I went to an all girls school and the band Pig Bay was with some boys who were at the boys school and some girls who were at the girls school. But um. We'd, with with just the girls in the school, we'd done a few things. I remember we played Kung Fu by Ash in the school assembly once and staying out for the summer by Gucci <laughs> in the school assembly once. So I'd done that sort of thing, but never like at a sort of evening kind of gig. I think that was that with Pig Bay, that was definitely the first the first time of playing a gig like that. Yeah. With the memories being vague, but do, do you have do you have a recollection of of uh really being drawn to 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 wanting to do more performance because it can go either way can't it you can sort of do it and think i don't i don't want to do that i much prefer the the recording side of things which is actually you know conversations we've had with previous 
previous people on the show were you drawn to performance do you think no I, yeah definitely I really like the performance side of things I, re- I like the recording side of things as well but when you're a keyboard player and a vocalist in the recording sessions you are the last person to do anything <laughs> so quite often you'll have been in the studio or or wherever you're recording for quite a long time before it gets to you so the initial excitement of like yeah we're going to the studio and then it's like oh god a whole day of setting up the drums and and <laughs> not that I have a problem I think it's very important to get a good drum sound don't get me wrong but <laughs> you, you are generally if particularly if you're working to a tight budget which we always have been you are the person who has to try and squeeze everything in into the, like the last half a day when everyone is knackered um tempers are sort of not not tempers are fraying but you know everyone's sort of been in each other's pockets for however long you've been in there and that kind of thing so my kind of feeling of being in the studio is quite a lot of sitting around and then real stress trying to be as efficient as possible at the very end (laughs) but performing is like I'm a bit of a show-off so I just quite like standing front and centre and and singing and and the annoying thing about keyboards is you can't sort of move about so much, but it's still like, I like, I really like being on stage. If we could, Susie, if we could go back to talk about the recording of the song of Carver Smile that we're going to hear at the end of the show. Um, you said that it was recorded in your, in your parents' spare bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about the recording? Yeah. So, so this was the first demo that, um, that I did in the sort of the main the main band that I've been in over the years, which we we formed when we were in sixth form. Well, in fact, they were already going. So at that talent show I was talking about, that band also played, but they had a different singer. And um, then um, I think I bumped into one of them on the way to London to see Trail of Dead. And um, we we just got chatting about being in bands and stuff. And then they went, oh, no, I think we're probably looking for a singer. And I went to the first band practice at one of their houses and they were, they were just doing covers at the time. And cause I could play light my fire by the doors. I think that's why I ended up in the band. <laughs> <laughs> we played that and, that and I remember playing Ballad of the Thin Man, the um, Bob Dylan song and, uh, a few other things I can't remember now, but yeah. So it was a bit, cause I didn't really, I knew one of them from seeing them at this gig and I didn't really know the other two. And it was a little bit, it was a little bit, it felt a little bit risky and sort of, I don't know, maybe the, I wouldn't have anything in common with these people, but then we ended up being in, being in that band for the whole time we were at uni. And then a couple of years afterwards as well uh, from joining in sixth form. But yeah, we, we played a few gigs as a covers band and then we we sort of started writing our own our own stuff and it was in upper sixth like over the sort of uh spring and summer of that year between finishing school and going to university that we thought well let's try and re- get something recorded and we clubbed together and bought a little Tascam four track and i think my parents went away for the weekend or something uh but we we basically stayed up for two or three days and just recorded everything. I think we might have set the drums up in the garage to try and get, I mean, that. no, we did the vocals in the garage. I think drums in the garage, that might be a bit too echoey. But um, yeah, we basically just sort of 
took sofa cushions from all over the house and created dead spaces and that kind of thing. But obviously with a four track, you're quite limited in what you can do. So it was a lot of recording, bouncing it down onto one track and then recording on the other three and bouncing it down and that kind of thing. And yeah, so it was a really, really fun weekend of sort of trying to teach ourselves production and performance and um, one thing you might notice when you listen to Carve a Smile is it gets quite silly at the end with some silly sounds and that was basically to disguise the fact that um, someone had gone quite out of time by the end so, <laughs> because we didn't have very good headphones so obviously we'd recorded the drums we weren't all playing along together you had to play along to the track in your headphones but well, we weren't very good at working out the volumes of different things. We couldn't get the headphones up high enough. So you were sort of guessing. And I think you can tell that with the vocals on some of the other tracks that it's like, really hope this is in time. And some, sometimes it ended up with them being slightly out of sync, but it actually sounded quite cool. So it sort of sounded deliberate. <laughs> but with the, uh, with the end of Carver Smile, it definitely didn't sound deliberate. So we were like, hmm, what can we do about this <laughs> So it's like, oh, some silly voices. Excellent. It sounds like such a brilliant weekend of, of uh, discovery, musical discovery and freedom. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Very little sleep. Yeah. What was it like coming back to listen to those demos again then, Susie? Well, it was really, it was, yeah. In a way, I was a little bit, I was a little bit sad listening back to it because we were really, really tight as a band at that point because we did a lot of playing together and because we were all sort of kind of young and still actively like having music lessons as well and so we were sort of at the height of our game really and then listening back it's like oh it's such a shame that we didn't <laughs> some of these recorded quite badly but it was really fun like memories coming back like one I think one of the songs I sent you is is a sort of remix of 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 the song but with um quotes from the 60s batman film over the top of it and i really vividly remember doing that because we talked about we sort of joked about it and then we'd finished the recording and the rest of the boys had all gone home and i was like my parents were away so i was sort of just like messing around and i thought oh i'll just try and put the batman quotes on myself so i literally just like held the microphone up to the tv pressed record on the thing and just hoped that they fitted in the right place and i got it right first time i was so proud of it <laughs> brilliant wow i mean yeah it's like the, the amount of time that you waste as a teenager it's so great <laughs> yeah isn't it luxurious <laughs> um so you will you also mentioned that you ended up practicing in a boxing gym now i've got to say when i read that i imagined you set up in the ring and just kind of bouncing off the <laughs> bouncing off the ropes <laughs> I mean, so obviously I'm, I'm sure we it... did. <laughs> we did that <laughs> because you've got to really. I mean, calling it a boxing gym is very uh, grand for what it was. It was basically a a sort of municipal hall in Chesham that had a boxing ring in it, and so you could obviously hire out this room. We ended up play, uh, like practicing in a few weird rooms like that. Like there was one in um, Amersham in the sort of in the car park of the leisure center that was full of old looms we practiced in that once or twice but yeah the boxing the boxing ring was i think it's just really cheap and i think our parents were getting quite sick of the noise by that point so they were like please can you find somewhere else to practice um and yeah 
there was so obviously we got in the boxing ring and we managed to find there were some boxing gloves lying around so took some very silly photos and messed about and yeah it was a it was a lot being in that band was an awful lot of fun like our guitarists used to occasionally turn up in um a gorilla mask when we were practicing and my parents dog used to go absolutely wild <laughs> trying to get this gorilla mask but the dog also, she was just in love with our drummer, Yian, and she used to sit by his drum kit while we were playing and just stare at him. And I'm sure that's why she went deaf at quite a young age for a time, because she just used to love sitting right next to his drums. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I'm so pleased that you ended up in the boxing ring. That's that's great. Um, with the other members of the subtraining sort of all heading off to different universities, so the assumption would be that that's the end of things for the band, isn't it? But that wasn't the case, no? No, we, we definitely want, like, we felt like we were only just getting going because we only, I only joined the band towards the end of Lower Sixth. So we'd only really been playing for a year and we'd done a few gigs. So I think our first ever gig was um, playing at a friend's 18th birthday party. But before I joined the band, they had a bit of a thing about, stupid pun names so they said well why the gig the birthday party was in a barn so they were like well why don't we call ourselves Susie and the barn she's and we'll all wear dresses <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was our first gig and then our second gig was um was supporting Lindis Farm oh, no. um, who, <laughs> brilliant some, some friends uh, of my of school friends dad ran a local cricket club and they were doing a fundraiser and somehow they'd managed to get Linda's fun to come and play and she knew I was in a band so she was like well you guys do covers why don't you come and support Linda's fun so we ended up supporting Linda's fun um and then the, our third gig was at a local village fate where um we genuinely got interrupted uh between songs so that they could announce that everything on the bric-a-brac store was 50 pence so, <laughs> so it was sort of the the ridiculous to the ridiculous to the other ridiculous um but we were just we were really enjoying it we were really enjoying writing music and so we weren't that far we were all at different unis but we weren't too far away from each other so it was like london bristol exeter and southampton and what it basically meant was each term we got four gigs because we'd go and play in one of those places or in in all of those places each term. And then um, during the holidays, we'd meet up and practice. And then each summer we'd spend sort of a proper amount of time writing a new set and recording a new demo, basically. So so that's what we did, really. And it worked really, really well because we kept our sort of our iron by playing a few gigs. We got a little bit to know the music scene in each of those four places. I mean, obviously, London, it's a bit harder to get to know the music scene, but there were sort of it's easier to get gigs in London. So so it's sort of evened out like that and, and I was the one in London and I was part of the live music society at UCL and I was going to lots of gigs so I was meeting lots of promoters and able to give demos out to people and that kind of thing so we were able to get some sort of fairly decent gigs in London playing the sort of Club Fandango, Dublin Castle, um, Bull and Gate in Kentish Town and all of the sort of the classic venues that you play when you're a starting out band and you can play in London. And then in Southampton, there are amazing venues like The Hobbit, which we used to play. Um, Exeter had, I think it's called The Cavern in Exeter that we played a few times. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then Bristol, um, 
which is where we all ended up moving after uni because our guitarist, he was studying medicine in Bristol. So when we all finished our degrees, he was obviously still going for a couple of years. And so kind of just without really talking about it or thinking about it, we all just moved to Bristol. And um, luckily, Bristol's really amazing and it's a great place to be in a band. But I didn't really know anything about it when I moved down there. It was just a case of, well, I don't really want to think about getting a proper job or doing anything. So this seems like, I mean, I might as well move to Bristol if I'm going to go anywhere. And we were really sort of keen to try and get the band actually going somewhere and also by this point we had been approached by a Bristol record label who wanted to put out some stuff so it seemed to make even more sense that like this is kind of perfect really there's this label in Bristol's got a few other bands signed to it so we had a little gang when we moved down there and yeah so it was fantastic really luckily. So tell us Tell us about the moment that the uh, the record label got interested. How did that happen? Um, I mean, it's all about the padded envelopes, isn't it? It's basically because we sent a load of demos out and um, we made three or four demos. And the last one that we made, um, we actually went to a studio to record it. Um, we we went to this, uh, this hippie in High Wycombe who had a shed in his back garden and... Um, and he recorded a couple of songs for us. And this is the demo that no one seems to have a copy of, which is really frustrating. I can't even remember what songs are on it. Um, I can really vividly remember the cover because it was sort of, it was made of brightly coloured card, so sort of blue, yellow and red card. And it was kind of like a cubist bicycle. So it was sort of a sort of circle and a bit of triangle kind of all stuck on this card and then folded and put in a plastic envelope and stuff. And I remember it really vividly because one Sunday evening, my mum and I just sat making about 500 of these things <laughs> and putting them in the envelope while we were watching, like, I don't know, Antiques Roadshow or something. Um, and and then these got sent out. We sent them to quite a few places and we did, we spoke to a few labels. Um, I remember speaking to, is it called? gut records that, that was yeah, sort of yeah. around that time i think and a few a and r people who sort of emailed and then nothing ever came of it but but ben from sink and stove he actually came up to london i think we were i can't remember why we met him in london given that brian lived in bristol but we did and um i remember meeting him at victoria train station for coffee and talking about kind of what the label could do for us and that kind of thing and it felt really like wow. oh wow we're being wooed by a record label how exciting <laughs> <laughs> um I, I mean it was really exciting but yeah, yeah so so that was kind of amazing and it felt nice that it was a quite small label and like local to well eventually all of us but at that point I think Brian and Yian both lived in Bristol by that point um and they um Yian was working in music venues in Bristol, so he knew a few people. And and Sink and Stove had put out um, this American band called The Organ, who were really, really amazing. And um, some local bands. They were the Ben was in a band called The Playwrights, who were really excellent. And um, then this band called Leaveland for Water, who were also really great. And I think they might have been involved with Gravenhurst as well, who was a very good friend of mine from Bristol. He sadly passed away a few years ago, but. Um, who went on to sign to Warp. So I think they put out something small on Sink and Stove before they went to Warp. So it felt like 
this was a really this was a really great opportunity and ben was just really nice as well really sort of personable and really keen to like hear what we wanted to do as well as sort of say what they wanted from us as well so it yeah it was just great it must have been super exciting i mean how how ambitious would you say that you were as a band at that point <laughs> um <laughs> i think we were I, I don't know. I don't like we never wanted to be sort of megastars, but we just really liked writing music, recording music and playing music. And so that someone was going to help us kind of do that on a slightly bigger scale than we were able to do at the moment just seemed perfect. And we did like I mean, Brian was obviously it was a little bit different because he was studying medicine. But for the rest of us, we did kind of just go, well, let's just get a job to pay the bills and then we all the, the the rest of the three of us all lived in a house together so we would write music like in the evenings and the weekends and we'd sort of mess about making videos and that kind of thing so it was basically the main thing that we did if we weren't playing music we were going and watching other bands and that kind of thing it's like music was the sort of fundamental part of our lives and then the jobs were so that we could afford to do the music and it was really exciting to be able to kind of work with a label that meant that we could go into a studio to do some recording and like not have very long in a studio but still actually like do it kind of a bit properly not in in a shed in someone's back garden in Highway, <laughs> which was something that we did very much on the cheap and and were able to um, just pay for out of our own pockets rather than have the sort of not not a lot of financial help because it was only a very small label, but enough to mean that we could we could think on a bit of a larger scale. And we went in Bristol to this incredible studio called Toy Box, which is run by Ali Chant, who and ended up becoming a really great friend to all of us as well. Um, but that was really exciting to be in a sort of a proper studio with a proper desk and like a proper live room separate from your mixing room and that kind of thing and a sort of grimy sofa and a fuzzy kettle and you just felt like (laughs) this is doing it properly (laughs) (laughs) how did it impact on the on the band being in a, a a proper studio as you call it how did that impact your your approach to sort of recording and and writing did it did it change things for you uh I think yeah it made us all a little bit over ambitious <laughs> um I I found a load of photos from I think it was our second EP that we did some I, we've started it in toy box and then we ended up finishing it ourselves because we ran out of time but I found a load of pictures of when we spent a whole day trying to contact Mike up the drummer's stomach so that he could like drum on his stomach and we could record it and <laughs> it didn't work it was a stupid thing to do <laughs> and it took us a really long time in studio that we were paying for so I think the, the pro- like my probably favourite band of all time is the Super Fairy Animals. And I've um, read a lot about the sort of the antics that they go up to in the studio of like uh, going out into the Monmouthshire hills to fire guns to record them and that kind of thing. And I was like, OK, so that's so that's what they do. So we can we can do things like that as well. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> it's not it's not quite the same, is it really? Um but yeah, it's definitely, I mean, we were never fully prepared when we went into the studio. There was always a sort of 
in a way that's why it's good that I kind of got to go last because there were some there were times that we went in where songs didn't have fully completed vocals um and that kind of thing I think within the band we were all four of us are quite sort of quite intellectual and quite silly at the same time which makes for a bit of a kind of butting of heads sometimes where really sort of not wanting to be too kind of angsty and like po-faced and overly serious but also then slightly worrying that we're going a bit too far the other way like all of our songs had really really stupid titles because quite often when we were practicing we just give them stupid titles like one of the ways that we as a band first bonded was um watching comedy in particular like alan partridge and the day to day um which I hadn't really seen until I joined that band and that's what they were all really into at the time. So as well as music, the kind of comedy went along with it. And I think sometimes we would sort of be a bit silly, like we'd be practicing songs and they'd just end up being called Bob the New Song or something like that. And then we get to the point of recording it and, and doing the track listing for the artwork and going, are we really going to call it Bob the New Song? <laughs> and then and then sort of partly wanting to and partly thinking we can't, we can't do that can we that's silly um and then having big arguments about it because no one could wait, make the sort of final decision so yeah there was there was that kind of angle of it that always meant sometimes in the studio it felt like we were having these discussions that we really probably should have had before we got to that point but I think I think I guess that's normal right and then sometimes when you try stuff out that you've got planned when you actually listen to it together it doesn't work so you need to come up with something different anyway so I think that maybe I'm being a bit a bit hard on us there. <laughs> that we didn't really waste time it's just that it's it's tough being in the studio and sort of in a way when you've got more options is actually harder because the great thing about a four track is you do have to be really disciplined. And when you've got like a huge sprawling desk in front of you, you can be a bit sillier and actually maybe that's a bad thing. <laughs> Having sets kind of barriers can actually help with creativity. Sure. And and you don't spend hours miking up the drummer's stomach. Exactly. It, it might have been brilliant. It might, maybe... It might have been brilliant. Yeah, yeah unfortunately though, it wasn't. <laughs> what were you hitting? What were you hitting his stomach with once it was my I think up? he was he was hitting it with his hands, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but yeah. You weren't taking turns yeah. to hit him with a with a bin or something. <laughs> that might have been more cathartic. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, and if you're listening to this, it's that I'm joking, I promise. <laughs> so so there was no input from like uh were you managing yourselves? Yeah, we we never had a manager. No, which was probably a shame in some ways. I think it might have helped. But um, yeah, I think we were just very much kind of just doing stuff and seeing how it went rather than there was not really ever any strategy. It was just, this is fun. Let's do more of it kind of thing. By this point, you'd morphed into you and the atom bomb. Yeah, we well, we became you and the Atom Bomb when we signed up with Sink and Stove. And that was partly because I think Angie Bowie had a band called The Subterraneans. Um, it was definitely a thing that already existed. Although, we so we thought, great, you and the Atom Bomb, brilliant. And just after we, I think it must have been just after we put out our first single, 
there was another band called You, Me and the Atom Bomb at exactly the same time, which is just an unbelievable coincidence, really. And not only that, but we had a song called Mudwig Barnhoff, which was some graffiti on the back of this venue called The Croft in Bristol, which was round the corner from our house. And I used to walk past it every day on my way to work. Um, And we this song about us living in this house together was called Mudwig Barnhoff. And you, me and the Atom Bomb, who weren't from Bristol, had come and played at the Croft and seen that graffiti and they had a song called Mudwig as well, which is just the weirdest (laughs) coincidence. I never met them, but I spoke to them on MySpace a few times and we were just like, this is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually on the show next week. (laughs) Yeah, that would be right. (laughs) But the amount of times people got the billing wrong and... Thought, I don't know whether they thought they were booking the other band or whether, but we got billed as you, me and the Atom Bomb a few times. They got billed as you and the Atom Bomb a few times. One of our EPs got reviewed and they wrote in the actual article, you, me and the Atom Bomb instead of you and the Atom Bomb. So it's just, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up really. <laughs> you were talking about living in, in Bristol and some of the venues you mentioned in Bristol and it's got such a rich musical heritage. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity, creative opportunities in Bristol. Um, can you say, say a little bit more about your experience of developing the band in a city like that? Yeah, it was so amazing. Um, there's so much going on. And, and actually, a lot of it was based around a forum. There was a forum called Choke in Bristol. And I joined it quite early on after moving down there. And pretty much every band was on that forum and every musician in Bristol was on that forum and lots of the music journalists were and lots of the venue promoters were so everyone knew everyone and like Bristol's quite a small city but it slightly I think it's it's like Liverpool in that way which is where I live now in that it slightly punches above its weight there's there's more going on than a city of that size you'd expect necessarily because I was really worried moving from London to Bristol I was thinking god this is going to be dead I'm going to be so bored and I I really wasn't there was so much going on and there were lots of other really interesting bands around the time as well because in London we mainly played with sort of guitar bands and which was great and fun but in Bristol there were people doing more interesting things or maybe it was easier to come across the people doing more interesting things like there was this incredible band from Safety Word who I think most, if not all of them, are from the Isle of Man. Um, but they have really, really intricate kind of guitars and vocals. And it was just so unusual. And we did we played quite a few gigs with them. We did a sort of mini tour with them as well. And in fact, Stephen Kerrison, who was in Safety Word, now lives in Liverpool around the corner from me as well. And he's been in lots of other bands since then. He was in Zunzun Agui for a while. Um, and... Yeah, it's just there's just some really, really interesting musicians in Bristol. And that was really quite inspiring as well. And you go to a practice room and in the next room, there would be a band doing really interesting things. And then you'd realise it was your mates and you could all go for a drink afterwards and that kind of thing. And it was just a really nice sort of community environment. It was really easy to play gigs together and sort of get um like get to know people and get opportunities to play for different audiences like some friends of mine put on a gig and I found the poster for it the other day. And um, it was us, Rosie Plain, um, Fuck Buttons and Safety Word. And it was like, I think it might have been the first or second ever Fuck Buttons gig. And wow. Rosie was um, 
obviously has obviously now become huge as well and it's just really like oh then that was just in this place called the cooler and it was just a bunch of our mates all having a really really lovely time um so yeah there was there was lots of that going on and obviously I left Bristol just before idols got really massive but they're an ama- another sort of amazing kind of Bristol success story and started in exactly the same way we're playing exactly the same venues and that kind of thing and and Dev from Idols would be on the door of um, the exchange whenever we'd be playing gigs there or going to gigs there and that kind of thing and it's just everyone knows everyone and everyone's so supportive and it's quite an inspiring place to be a musician and also in Bristol no one's ever in just one band so it's really nice you get to like play sort of different styles of music potentially and definitely play with different people and I think that really helps with creativity and certainly for me I ended up playing in quite a few bands while I was in Bristol and it really helped my my technique and sort of my keyboard playing in particular some of the bands that I was in it was really complex and that then made me think in a different way about writing keyboard parts in other bands. Like it's nice to write music, but it's also nice to be in bands where someone else is writing the music and kind of telling you what to play because it makes you use your brain and use your skills in a different way, which can then influence you going forward. And there was a, there's like a huge stylistic change development between those early demos and the, and what you end up sounding like six or seven years later, isn't there? Is that, do you think that's partly as a result of being around those inspirational people and, and absorbing all those kind of influences? Yeah, definitely. And I think what we were listening to ourselves changed and obviously going, I think you, you as an individual change a lot when, from when you're 16 to when you're 23 24 25 um I think that had a big influence as well one of the things that had such a huge influence on us as a band was hearing the Coral's first album definitely and the strokes but more so the choral I think of going oh this is cool this is different this is inventive and exciting and sort of yeah helping us to get out of that end of Britpop mentality and into something new I think but definitely like moving to Bristol all of us being together and so being able to share the same influences more easily like we instead of seeing each other four times a term we'd see each other every single day and so I think that had a that made a really big difference and yeah moving to Bristol and meeting new people and sort of expanding our musical horizons I suppose definitely uh helped us to be a bit more kind of inventive and interesting with what we were doing yeah it all sounds really positive and and progressive and and there's there's lots going on and it's and and you're developing as a band and you've you've made all these these different connections but then but then it it drew to a close um what was it that caused the end of the the band given that there's all this other positive sort of momentum going on yeah, it's it's a weird one, really. I think it was just sort of time and life a little bit. I mean, obviously, like our guitarist being a medic by the time that he'd qualified meant that he was quite busy and had a sort of real job and the, the rest of us kind of didn't for, um, for a while. But then I got a job at Bristol University and that felt a bit more like oh this is this could actually be a career I felt like that was something sort of positive to be doing as well and our drummer um decided to become a maths teacher and so we all sort of thought 
we probably do need to earn money as well as enjoying being in this band. And I think it was, yeah, we had a few kind of offers that we weren't able to take up, um, like some tours and things like that. And I think at that point, realising that we weren't doing it properly enough to make it a career made us kind of go, well, maybe we should probably think about doing other things. And yeah, it was a real shame because like in my head, I don't really, I can't pinpoint exactly why it happened. I think we never ended up playing our last gig either because I think someone had a bereavement in the family. So what would have been our last gig ended up not ended up we had to cancel it so actually our last gig was just a gig that we thought was just a gig <laughs> which is probably the best way to do it really um and I think we never I mean we must have talked about the band coming to an end but I don't remember it feeling like a difficult decision or sort of there was no kind of animosity or anger no one fell out with anyone we were all still like enjoying hanging out I think we all still live together at that point. I can't quite remember what order things happened. So yeah, it was like, it was a real shame, but um, yeah, I guess these things run their course. I mean, if we all lived in the same place, I would want to restart the bands for sure. <laughs> Cause it was, it's like, they're three of my favorite people in the world and it was always really, really fun to do. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe they remember it differently. Maybe they re- really vividly remember that why we broke up, but I think it was just that we were all sort of too busy, I guess. Sure. Do you think it meant that you were kind of collectively walking away from the ambition of being full-time full-time musicians? I mean, I, obviously from your bio, we can see you went on to play in lots and lots of different bands afterwards, but had the motivation changed for you by that point? Well, by the time that you and the Atom Bomb ended, I was already in at least two of those bands. So that's what I mean about Bristol is you're not in just one band. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it was that we couldn't really expect Brian to having just spent five or six years training as a medic to then like just turn his back on it and 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 live in a squat so that we could try and like play a gig supporting scissor sisters or something you know that we're going to get paid 20 quid for <laughs> um which did happen no actually, actually i don't think that one did happen it was we were offered it but it didn't work out but yeah but yeah things like that where you think this is a good opportunity but it's not opportunity does not pay the bills mm. in this instance it might get us a crate of beers uh but yeah that's probably not we can't live in a crate of beers um so i think we were kind of at that stage of it sort of it, it we weren't quite far enough that we could have all taken a year to see whether we could do it mm. and we were getting to the point where we had to do something else so i think that's probably the real reason but yeah it was that's the great thing about bristol is that you can very easily uh find other people to play with as as i had so i think i was doing il goblini which was a goblin covers band that's by that my point. next and that's I think my I'm, next question <laughs> <laughs> that's everyone's question because yeah i mean it was the most one of the most fun periods of my life being in that band um that one had to come to an end because Goblin reformed and toured in the UK and we decided it was a bit weird. <laughs> but um, it was, that was that was an incredible band to be in because not only is like 
I don't, for people who don't know Goblin, they're a 1970s Italian horror soundtrack band. So they did the soundtrack to Dawn of the Dead and they did the soundtrack to a lot of Dario Argento films. So films like Suspiria and Tenebrae, which Justice covered. So so you prob- you've probably heard some of their songs. If you've ever watched uh, anything that Charlie Brooker has made, there's usually some Goblin somewhere in that. There's Goblin in Shaun of the Dead. Um you know they they crop up all over the place but um but yeah we were just uh four idiots who who really liked <laughs> goblin and thought how hard can it be to play their songs it turns out <laughs> quite hard <laughs> but it was yeah that was those band practices were really fun because it's like you take away that sort of songwriting thing and you're just learning how to play these sort of complex things and when they work and they come together it just sounds so amazing and it turns out there was a big appetite for for people booking that for us to play live. We played quite a few sort of New Year's and Halloween parties in particular. Um, but what would be really interesting is that the audience would be really split in that half of them would not have a clue who Goblin were and would go, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like, how do you write these songs? And then the other half would go... Um, when in Tenebrae, when you when this happens, and like really nerd out about all the in depth sort of goblin lore. So, <laughs> is there a temptation to get Ill Goblini back together again? Then? <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, once Goblin started playing, and there's now there's two different goblins as well. There's um, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin, okay, Simonetti being the synth player, and then there's the other Goblin, which is basically the rest of them. <laughs> And both of them are, have have toured at some point. I've seen both of them live. Um, but yeah, we decided that actually that was a bit, it was a bit too close to the bone. Although we did start, we started writing our own songs in the style of Goblin, um, which were all given really, really stupid names in Italian. Like one of them, I can't remember what it is in Italian now, but it was called like the cow with a thousand eyes or something. Or something, like, or something <laughs> like that. And these, those, I think those ones are all lost because they were all on MySpace. And I think now that you can't get on MySpace anymore, I think, I think they've gone, which is quite sad. Um, I think you may have covered this a little bit so far, but when did your when did your academic career start to take precedence over over making music? Um, very late on, really. It's surprisingly easy to be an academic and a musician. And I mean, in all honesty, if I could find a band in Liverpool, then I would probably still be doing music now. Um, basically, I, I I was still in bands up until the point when I moved up here three years ago, and I yeah, I guess like I was I was focusing a little bit more on science stuff. So I I'd been living in Bristol for over a year before I started working at the university. I was just temping up until that point, and then I did a few uh, sort of research assistant jobs they're called at university and before I sort of realized actually this could be a career and then I started trying to get PhD funding but that took me sort of four or five years to actually get the funding to do a PhD so I did sort of lots of different research assistant jobs in that time point but uh, but all through that I was still in several bands at least and even like once I finished my PhD I then joined this band called Uncle Ecstasy who were um 
all the rest of them were were sort of full-time musicians and um so it was an incredibly daunting band to join as well it was all instrumental it was two drummers and it was really quite complex sort of long uh I don't know. I always called it proggy, but um, the bassist got very angry with me for saying that it was prog, but it was a bit prog, Um, but, but really like complex. And also what happened was one drummer taught me all the keyboard parts. And then when we set up to practice in the practice room, I was standing next to the other drummer who was playing completely different polyrhythms across the top of it. And it just completely threw me and I, I couldn't, I could I could fit the bits with that drummer, but not with that drummer. And both drummers were called Matt, just to make life extra confusing. <laughs> but like, you don't realise how much you listen to one particular rhythm, and then when someone's playing something completely different over the top, it just yeah, they were quite complicated pieces, and yeah, it's quite mathsy some of it. So yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, like my academic career is definitely the thing that I do now, but I would still love to be playing in bands if I could be, if I could find a band at the moment. I mean, I'm two months away from having a baby, so I probably shouldn't be saying I want to join bands. Right now. Yeah. But I do, I do miss playing music with other people a lot. Like I sit and play the piano a lot. And actually during lockdown, I've really um, started playing the piano more, which I'm really, really enjoying. But yeah, playing music with other people is such a, such a, joyous thing to do yeah absolutely so do you um just thinking about your academic career and your area of sort of specialism do you think that there are uh, have you sort of noticed any parallels between the the addictive nature of making music and creating music or uh, any art form and the prevalence of drug taking amongst musicians and artists yeah it's something i'm really interested in like So I'm particularly interested in understanding the links between substance use and mental health. And I think in the music industry, there's quite a strong link between the two and maybe a higher prevalence of both. But kind of understanding why that is, I think, is quite a complicated and interesting picture. And in fact, um, on my podcast, Say Why to Drugs, we did an episode about this, which we recorded live at Smithdown Road Music Festival in the Craft Tap Room on Smithdown Road. And um, had some really interesting conversations with um, the panel and the audience about what are the particular things. Because being in a touring band in particular, it's quite a situation that puts you not only, I mean, particularly alcohol. Alcohol is everywhere when you're a band that well to be honest at any level of success that you're at like the number of gigs that we played where they're like I'm really sorry we can't give you any cash but like help yourself to the beers that or yeah we'll just pay you in beer um that kind of thing that's really really common Mm. and then as you get a bit bigger you're sort of expected to have a rider which will be full of booze um and it can be like touring can be quite boring it's very monotonous there's like an hour of mega excitement adrenaline and then the rest of the time you're sort of waiting around for sound check waiting around for this and that sitting in a tour bus like it's kind of lends itself to (laughs) taking substances to pass the time and it's incredibly high stress you're kind of living in each other's pockets um well, depending on the level of success you are, it can be high stress for lots of different reasons. And that can put pressure on your mental health as well as on your sort of resilience to 
using substances and potentially to start relying on substances and maybe thinking about things like stimulants you're like you're you're exhausted and you need to get on stage and perform so maybe coffee is not quite strong enough for you anymore Mm -hmm. you know and the the link between drugs and mental health poor mental health seems to be particularly when you start relying on using a substance to cope whether it be alcohol or whether it be anything else and sort of if you're using it in that way then that's far more predictive of of poor mental health than than other patterns of use perhaps and i think i don't think there's necessarily something about musicians that that leads to that but it's the sort of situations that you might find yourself in and i and then the link between drugs and creativity is something that i also find really really interesting like what direction is causality there Mm. are people do people take drugs and does that make them more creative or are people who are more creative more drawn to this idea of altering their perception and and taking mind-altering substances and actually sort of the creativity is not caused by the drug at all but it's kind of it's kind of in the other in the other direction i was um i was a guest on a podcast the other day called your own personal beatles where they um talk about sort of what the beatles mean to you and one of the hosts said yeah maybe it's not necessarily um about the lsd but it definitely helps if you're taking lsd it helps if you're john lennon it's like yeah i think it probably does you what what was your experience of it in terms of your music making and um, and drugs? Did that play an influential role in music making? Oh for God! You? So I've been in bands with people who can drink really really heavily and play note perfectly, and I am not one of those people. I am. I, in fact, it was on the tour that we did with Safety Word that I discovered this. And we'd driven down to Southampton and we were playing at this this bar called The Hobbit, which is really amazing. But it was it was a really quiet night in there. And the basically um, Safety Word played to us and then we played to them. And that was kind of it. I mean, there were probably a few more people in there than that. But that's how I remember it. But it was really exciting to be on tour. And I I drank more than I should have done before we played and the whole gig I was just so paranoid I was just thinking oh god I'm gonna mess up in front of these musicians who I really respect and I didn't enjoy the gig at all uh, because of that and and from that point onwards I've never drunk while I've been playing and I think that puts me in quite a minority in terms of uh, musicians I mean I have a drink afterwards sure but like I couldn't drink and play at the same time so I was very much uh yeah in I like I just didn't like the paranoia of thinking that I was going to make a mistake because I wasn't quite in control of my fingers and then as as what I was playing got more complicated that kind of became even more so but like Inil Goblini our guitarist he he never played sober like practice or or gigs that's probably unfair I'm sure he did (laughs) but um he could drink an awful lot and still be incredible incredible guitarist and I could never understand it (laughs) I I had my light bulb moment about playing drunk in Bristol funnily enough playing at the uh fleece in Bristol and getting really drunk before playing 
and then falling onto the stage, like just stumbling drunk up onto the stage, falling onto the stage when we were walking on to play and having the most horrendous time. That that was it. That was I, I never never got drunk before playing playing again. Um, yeah, because it's awful. It's an, yeah. an awful. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, the fleece is where I saw Goblin. Oh, is it? <laughs> Can you imagine Goblin oh playing God. at the fleece? My yeah. God, amazing! Wow, it's really good. <laughs> Ah, awesome. Um, well, I'm, I'm just looking at our list of questions, and there's a couple that you've kind of already talking about making making music now and plans to do more. So you don't, but you'd like to. You, you'd like to be playing, given given the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. I've done a few since I've been up here. It's mainly been um, the Christmas band at work that we've we've done a few years, um, which is playing playing some covers for the staff and students, which is really good fun and, and very silly. Um and then otherwise just kind of for my own entertainment really. My partner's a musician, so there's always music going on in the house, uh, which is really nice and obviously been to lots of gigs since I moved up here. Um, managed to I'm so lucky that I've found colleagues who I've got loads in common with in fact it turns out that so when I was still at uni in London I think um, the Coral put on their Midsummer Night Scream gig where they erected a big top on the beach in New Brighton and we all drove up from London to go to that gig and it turns out that half of my colleagues that I now work with were at that gig as well ah. so it's like oh great well we're going to be friends yeah. <laughs> how, imp- how important is it for you do you think to maintain some level of sort of creative output music given that it's been so formative and important and present for you um, do you ever consider that uh, that you need to maintain that in, uh, at some level yeah I think definitely playing writing I've never really written by myself. I've talked so much about doing solo albums and I've never really done it. So it's obviously not a pressing need for me because if I could, if I wanted to have done something like that and I haven't, but for me, I think it's more about the playing and and playing is something that I can do kind of by myself. I definitely like to sit down at the piano and play. And I like recently I relearned all of the pieces that I learned for grade eight when I took my exams back when I was in sick form and relearning how to play some of those and then learning some new pieces as well. That's been really satisfying as sort of documenting kind of my improvement as well. I would sort of play stuff on Instagram stories and then each week I'd notice that it was getting a bit better. And so that's quite pleasing that sort of practice really does help guys <laughs> who knew. <laughs> um, but that was a, a sort of, I've kind of, it's fallen a little bit by the wayside now, but that was um, the beginning of lockdown in particular. It would be, that would be how I would demark the end of the day. I'd work, because because I'm kind of doing everything in the same room at the beginning of lockdown, I was finding really difficult. So I'd shut my laptop and I'd sit at the piano for half an hour. And it's kind of like my version of mindfulness, I guess, because you have to be in the present. You you have to let go of whatever you're thinking about. And you know you know when you have, because you stop making mistakes, you find that flow and you're playing and, and it's really amazing. Whereas if you're kind of still fixated on something, you'll be making mistakes. You won't be, you won't be fully concentrating on what you're doing. And I found that really, really, 
really helpful as a kind of right the end of the day has happened and I can shut off the sort of work part of my brain and then then I can go and have an evening of feeling actually like I am relaxing rather than I've still got this kind of hangover of what's been going on during the day so I think that's kind of a really important role that music still plays for me um I get like do get to be creative at work like I create sort of podcasts and I've written a book recently and um in a way science is creative because you're sort of designing experiments and or coming up with questions and working out ways to answer them and that kind of thing so there's definitely you can be creative within academia um but yeah I, I would I would never want to get to a point where music wasn't a very important part of my life for sure you talked about how the the rest of the subterranean, the rest of the band, were really important people to you. Are they uh, are the other people still involved in making music? Um, so I I was in a band with our guitarist Brian more recently. So we were in a band called Gliss Gliss together, and that band was still going pretty much until I moved up to Liverpool as well. Um, Yian, I think he is doing music at the moment. Um, he formed a band after you in the atom bomb called Bravo Brave Bats, who are excellent. And I think he started doing, I think he put a little duo together just before lockdown. I think they were doing a couple of gigs. Um, Jean-Marc now lives in France and I think, I don't know whether he's making music at the moment. Um, I know he's got a very young family, so it might be tricky at the, at the moment, but I'm sure it's never far from his from his the top of his agenda and he was in other bands in Bristol before he moved to France as well after you and the atom bomb so yeah everyone was certainly still enjoying music whether they were actively making it or or sort of had plans in the pipeline kind of thing uh Susie thank you so much what a what a wonderful range of experiences you've shared with us it's been so brilliant to hear all about that thanks for taking some time to come and yeah, talk to you. us Oh, I really, I really enjoyed reminiscing. <laughs> it was just lovely. <laughs> Can we just finish off with you uh, introducing your song, please? Right. This is from our first demo recorded in 2001, I think. This is Carve a Smile by the Subterraneans. Oh, 
Choking on a fatness with your butterflies And it's me, yeah And if you're ever inclined to make me Cover smile Choking on a fatness with your butterflies And it's me And I got something You don't know Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>